0: Um yeah. also when he was evil, when he was his doppelganger and he Ernest was Jim Varney, he was hot. He was as I, fuck. Yes,
1: I agree. <laughs> I totally agree. I was actually like Wait, I what <laughs> is I 100% agree. This is a clip from a 2014 episode of the podcast, How Did This Get Made?, which is a personal favorite. You are listening to June Diane Rayfield and guest Leslie Arfin discuss Ernest Goes to Jail. Uh, this conversation was so notorious, it later got baked into a remix of their theme song. Uh, it's, it's my favorite. You'll hear Jason Manzuka's weigh in momentarily.
0: Shocked. Shocked. And he was kind of aching to do drama. <laughs> Well you here's know, the he thing. actually he did do so, some drama. And he was so I, good as evil Ernest. Really good. He was great, <laughs> Jason. And
2: I at one you point I thought to myself, I'm right,
1: I, I, I never thought. I never was like, ooh, this is <laughs> this is getting me going now.
2: I Cute. was shocked, and at
0: one point I thought to myself, is he really attractive? Or and I thought he was oozing sexuality. Totally. Oozing? Oozing yes. uh, to
3: sexuality. Yes.
1: Jim for Ernest. In the uh, Ernest. I agree. Uh, in uh, Ernest? Uh, okay, I just want to make sure in Ernest Goes to Jail, yeah. there was a character that was oozing sexuality.
3: Uh. For you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Wow.
1: Alright, thank you to uh, How Did This Get Made and uh, host Paul Shear for letting us use that clip. Uh, I feel like it's the perfect entry to this episode. You are listening to National Demystified. Here we try to better understand the city, its history, its quirks, its people, and its culture, one conversation at a time. National Demystified is sponsored by Knack Factory, a video content and production company with offices based here in the city and by We Own This Town, a collection of podcasts produced by Nashvillians. There are a bunch of great podcasts on that network. Go and check them out. Dive in um, with any of them. You'll find something for you, we assure. Today we talk with Daniel Butler, uh, who has a long, rich history in the city of Nashville. He's from here, and he moved to New York in the 60s before coming back in the 70s and finding the city to be wildly different. He talks about all sorts of different things that he's been involved in, from early improv scenes to co-creating the show and the book series America's Dumbest Criminals. I found Butler through his work with uh, Jim Varney, or uh, as folks of a certain age know him, Ernest P. Worrell. More on that in a few. We also talked with the great Jenny Ling Gardner, who was uh, one of the founding members of Delame, the Grammy Grammy-nominated Delame, Just a really fabulous and fantastic band uh, that. Is is just is incredible. And they sort of have traveled the world. They have been to all different places um, on the marriage of their music. They've played with uh, um, uh, Steve Martin and Martin Short. I mean, they are they are truly incredible. Um, She also has a solo project of her own. We talk about how Nashville shapes her music and process and how uh, she and her approach have changed since coming here 10 years ago. Like I said, I came across Daniel Butler by coming across Ernest. I asked a Reddit national group to share some of their favorite alternative histories of the city, and someone recalled having been around for the filming of Ernest Goes to Camp. Another Redditor suggested that I get in touch with Daniel Butler, who had written for the Ernest films and TV shows and some of the earliest movies uh, before they had a national audience. And then he was there throughout the uh, the whole run. For people who don't know, Ernest P. Worrell was a character created by the Nashville advertising agency called Carden and Cherry, and was used in various television campaigns. Uh, the character was a creation of director and adman John Cherry, who created the character based on a friend of his father. He was uh, kind of in everyman, uh, well-intended, big-hearted, quasi-redneck, I guess, uh, who was talking to a character off-screen who he called Vern, um, and usually he was talking about the, uh, the benefits of whatever product he was engaged with. He was portrayed by Lexingtonian, uh, Jim Varney, who was living in Nashville and involved in performance and stand-up through the 70s and the 80s, uh, through a series of movies and eventually kids television series, the character found national and even international notoriety and was for a long time he was everywhere. Um, Ernest uh, was a character that really I mean it sounds it sounds maybe hyperbolic, but he he was uh, known by everyone of a particular generation. Daniel Butler was a writer on many of those films and on that TV show, and he shares his experiences there and in Nashville over the decades uh, here. Uh, but first, like I said, I'm stoked to talk with Jenny Lynn, and uh, I'm glad she was able to come onto the show and talk about her work, her experiences uh, as a musician, her life here in Nashville. I mean, she has had an extraordinary career so far. As I said, she's one of the founding members of Della a Grammy-nominated band that has been truly everywhere. Um, they've been to over 30 different countries. Uh, and as I said earlier, I am extraordinarily jealous at their proximity uh, to <laughs> (laughs) to play with uh steve martin and martin short they just are everywhere they do a lot and they make a lot of uh, incredible things and they are presently doing that right now they're recording a new album um gardner released her own uh album back called burn another candle in 2017 um here she discusses that what it's like working with a band what it's like working on her own and what she's hoping to accomplish in the near future How did you end up here?
0: Um, The music scene. Yeah. Yeah. I would always wanted to move here. And I moved here when I was like 21. Mm-hmm. And I stayed for three years and then moved back. I moved to Boston when I joined Della May. Right on and then on a whim and I was like I'll just stay for the summer and that ended up being three yeah. years and then after the third winter I was like I can't yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't do another New England winter yeah. I have to go back south and it made Nashville made the most sense because I was We're still Delamay was traveling a ton and needed it close by airport and yeah. music scene so
1: that's a hard I mean that's hard like I, I'll run into people who are moving to New England for the first time and I think that they're when they're like oh like how bad are the winters and I think I think people are really looking for someone to tell them that it's gonna be okay Mm -hmm. and I also think it's important for someone to tell them it might not be okay yeah (laughs) totally winter is brutal
0: they're so brutal (laughs) like I had no idea it was so green it just naive about the whole thing and the first year it was fun and exciting the second year I was like oh this kind of like this kind of sucks. And then the third year I was like, Get me out of here. Yeah, absolutely. I can't.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's like you give up you give up uh if you're coming down from New England, you give up winter, which is nice in a big way, and you pick up like bugs and tornadoes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so true. That's your trade. Or hurricanes if you're if you're further towards the water.
0: It's so true. Oh my gosh.
1: Do you, I, Oh sorry, please.
0: Oh, I was just gonna add, like I was like, When I was in Boston, we were in the city, you know, I was living in Cambridge, and I was just like, Shoveling snow for the first time in my life and getting all this great exercise, but also being like, "Where do I put the <laughs> snow?"
1: <laughs> exactly. I'm just moving it like four feet over here.
0: Yeah. But,
1: what? So okay. So you just tell me. Tell me a bit about. I know that you you wear a handful of different you know mm-hmm. uh, figurative hats uh, musically. Just tell me a bit about those.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess the longest running gig that I've had is with Del mm. I'm going on ten years with Delame, So. Yeah founding member, um, five, I think we're putting out our fifth record next year. Yeah. Um, and I released a solo album, my first solo album, two years ago, and toured, I think I played like 75 shows for that um, record. So just tried to establish my establish myself in my music and my solo stuff, because it's so different from, it. I feel like it's totally different from anything I'm doing with Delamay. And right. I'm singing lead and playing um, a bunch of original songs and poppy songs and bluegrass um, more you know traditional sounding bluegrass
1: yeah how, how the more people I talk with in in and around a scene that has a foot in bluegrass mm-hmm. it seems like it is, or can be hard, or is like existentially trying to play other kinds of music and feel comfortable in those kinds of music, mm-hmm. and not to say mm-hmm. they feel comfortable as if like that's what you you enjoy doing. Yeah, but like there's because there because bluegrass is so traditional, sort mm-hmm. of like like uh, a structurally traditional. Yeah. it seems like it can be difficult to play other things. Can you tell me? Is that yeah. your experience or what? What what is that? I mean,
0: like? it can be, but like. Because I'm a girl, like yeah. I automatically can't play traditional
1: music. That is <laughs> like, an amazing thing to say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like, I remember one time Dela May got this like bad review and someone was like, They sing Big Spike Hammer and E and the originals and B flat and we're just like, We don't have low voices. <laughs> like we're not gonna sing the same key. Sure. Duh. Yeah. You know?
1: So that's liberating in a way. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, we're automatically not traditionalists. And I mean we could like try to sound traditional, but it it just wouldn't work. Right. Because our voices are in different ranges.
1: Yeah. Do you do you um I mean I feel like did you get that more at the start than you've gotten that recently? I don't know. I think
0: I think people like our fans that accept us, bluegrass fans and and just any fan, I think they love what we do and they you know it's not really been a major thing really yeah here and there we get a little bit of chin music or whatever it's just yeah just don't pay it any attention
3: yeah
1: and how has it gone going from from being in delamay for a long time Mm -hmm. i mean i think a lot of people i know haven't been in a band for for 10 years how has it been to establish yourself with what you're doing
0: so fun oh my gosh it was It's like almost a guilty pleasure. (laughs) And I was totally scared. Don't get me wrong. Like, I was really freaked out. Like, oh, my gosh, I'm doing this thing, and I'm putting myself out there. But it was a better reception than I expected and just really fun and inspiring. And I'm ready to make another record as soon as possible. But I just have to get a little more money, and and I have a concept for it, and, you know, I have to... Also, get a little bit of time because I've just recorded, uh, just put out a record with Della Mae and just recorded another record with Delame. But I plan to keep making se- solo records because it's so fun for me and I love the creative process. And it literally took up 24 7 for almost a year le- or more leading up to recording the record from writing the music to putting the shows together to putting the band together for the recordings right. and um, the concept for the ideas for the record and just everything that went with it was so time consuming. But I love that. I like being busy and have something to focus on.
1: Yeah. And I don't know what the process is of of putting something together with uh, with a band and mm-hmm. I mean it seems like with lma y'all have been together and around each other for a while yeah. so I imagine just like structurally it must be nice to, on some level to just be like I am going to make this decision yeah <laughs>
0: it is the thing one of the things that I love about Delame is we all have a say and you know we we wait to hear what people think and um, about every decision and i will be the first to if i if it if i don't have a strong opinion about something i will quickly say i don't have a strong opinion if someone else does go for it mm-hmm. but with music you know we all have a say in it and um it can be exhausting waiting to hear from everyone on every decision so when it came time to produce my own record and um, make that record the solo record it was yeah, it was cool to just be like, okay, this is what I want, and this is the sounds that I want, and I've been around Nashville long enough, and I knew who I wanted to play on the record. Um, I've been around Nashville getting to know and hear different musicians, so in my mind, the songs that I wanted to record, um, I knew who I wanted to play on the record because of knowing my friends' and peers' uh, abilities.
1: Yeah. Can you talk a bit about that process? Like, what is it like... Um, because this, I mean, this show is very much about understanding like who people are in Nashville and how they are in Nashville. Yeah. So, what is it like to record a record here, and why? Why be? I mean, it seems like the answer is a no-brainer, but like, why be here to be mm-hmm. a musician who's putting together or putting together new music?
0: Yeah. Um, it can be, it can be a million different things, and it's every record is different, and it, the process can be different for anyone. Um, for me, I produced the record and I hired really great musicians that I trusted, and I knew um, their abilities, like I was saying, like I you know you you know what people are capable of, not everything that they're capable of. they surprise you know, musicians surprise you all the time, but um I don't know. I guess for me, just being around, I go to see a lot of live music, I jam, um, you know, I get together with other people to play music and um, for me, listening and hearing and knowing people that are playing, like if I go to a honky-tonk downtown, if I go to Layla's on Broadway, a lot of times I'll know the players on stage. I'll know them by name. We'll have a, either a history of friendship or a time that we've played music together or a time we've been on stage together. And I think opening your eyes and ears to getting to know all the musicians in this town is for me, it's necessary, it's a good thing to, to know your community and not just worry about what you're doing, but when it comes time to make a record, you can think back in your log of your Rolodex of people that you've met, and if there's a certain sound that you want, most of the musicians that I know are for hire for a studio right. session. So, um, I always have my eyes and ears open to everyone that i am come in contact with to oh, maybe at some point I would like to record music with this person or maybe they sang a song that I loved and want to record. And so if I, you know, I, I remember all of these things that I get to witness in living in a city like Nashville that's saturated with great musicians. I just, you know, you're always, like, I'm like a satellite, just always, mm-hmm. like, soaking up information.
1: Yeah, It's like a real it's like a catalog. It's like a real time catalog. Totally. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it took a little bit of training to open myself up to that. Mm. When I moved here the first time when I was 21, I was kind of in the mind state of like, who can I meet or who can hear me play music? And how do I navigate? But I quickly learned like, the best thing to do is just soak it all in and meet people and listen and appreciate everyone that you come in contact with. Musicians and non-musicians alike.
1: Yeah, I feel like that to some degree too, that attitude probably probably shifts your opportunities a bit because, you know, like I think people get freaked out when they're, um, approached by someone who it seems like they're trying to get something yeah do you know what i mean and like when we first get to a place and we're hungry we're like yeah how do i get it how do i get it how do i get it and that like freaks people out totally
0: totally. yeah i look back and like when i was in that sort of i didn't know you Mm -hmm. know it's just how do you do something and now i see it now that i have a little bit of time under my belt here and now i see it i see it in other people and i have a soft place in my heart for it, but I'm also like, okay, yeah. you'll figure it out, you'll be fine, but yeah. it's gonna take a little while.
1: Yeah, I feel like it's. I mean, that's it, it, great advice that that I haven't really heard many people say so far. Is that it's like to go out and just listen to all of it and like yeah. be aware of what's out there. Totally. Can you, for this for this record in particular, was there anyone that you can think of that? um um that you were listening to or who came onto the record who like maybe you didn't know going in that they were going to be a fit and you you they, that made sense you know um, looking back it made sense who you were looking yeah. for yeah
0: so well i didn't have i didn't know who was i knew who was going to play bass on it i knew i wanted mike Bud to play bass on it i knew i wanted kyle Tuttle to play banjo on it um i knew i was obviously going to play mandolin but i didn't I needed a high tenor voice, mm. someone who could sing tenor, and I needed a guitar player. And that was the missing link. And I, was at a sh- I would, got hired to play a show, um, and my friend, Frank Rishi, who ended up playing a guitar on my record, my friend was on the gig. And he, we start playing the gig together, and I've known him for years. We start playing the gig together, and I'm sitting here playing the first song, and I'm like, oh. I would, right. Frank is the person, right. and it you know he sing, he sings great, he's a great guitarist, great person. I've known him forever. I leaned over and asked him after the first song, "Hey, I'm thinking about making a doing a record. Would you be willing to play on it?" He's like, "Yeah, I would. Get in touch with me."
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Without that, that was the missing link. Sure. So. Yeah, that wasn't exactly like not knowing the person yeah. in advance. No, but that but makes sense. That, yeah, you know,
1: you saw you saw an opportunity that you wouldn't maybe you didn't immediately sort of imagine. Yeah, when you were there.
0: Yeah, like that was the missing link. Um, just having someone with the energy and the feel and the heart to uh, for the music side of it, and then the vocals too, because right. I wanted to like have a core band that the band recorded everything on the record with me. So it wasn't, it wasn't like having different players on each song. There were, I did add fiddles and different things on a couple of songs, but mm-hmm. that was a core band, so.
1: Yeah, that's excellent. And wh- how, what has, uh, has your... I guess since moving to Nashville, like this is your base, I assume. Mm-hmm. Like this is where you spend spend the majority of your time. Um, have you been traveling as much as you were when you first got here, or are you sort of more centered with this being being where you're spending your time?
0: Um, I still travel a ton. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like the variety of being gone, and then I, you know, I have gigs that I play when I'm in town. I'm lucky to get calls to play gigs. I play late on Monday nights mm. with the Grassaholics. Um, when I'm in town, usually, and, you know, I get calls for different gigs around town, which is great, and sometimes I get to go play the Opry, which yeah. is amazing, and yeah. um, I go to a ton of shows, and I try to support my friends that are touring through town, but I still am, I've been, over the winter and uh, during the last few months, I've been recording in town with LMA, so I have been home more, um, but... I, I don't know I guess after living here for so long you make relationships and if it's Nashville's the kind of city if you embrace the city it will embrace you back and mm-hmm. the people and the some of the even the staff at the bars and such that I go to and hang out at I get to know them and I care about them and I have their numbers in my cell phone and I right. you know if something's going wrong in their life or they're sick I check in on them and mm-hmm. then and then in turn I, I, I've played gigs before at, at like places around town that I regularly play with other musicians and it I I just I feel like everyone in this in the so if you're if I'm playing at a venue and there's a bar staff and there's a bar back and there's a band and there's a door person, it's like, okay, we're the entertainment tonight but we it takes the entire staff right. to make it work. So getting to know everyone in the scene I think is really important
1: yeah that's so interesting that you bring that up that's something I I, I think I'm like I, I am very focused on like people on on hospitality in particular and and I think when one of those elements goes wrong, like you can go to a restaurant and the food can be great and the hospitality is not great and yeah it so really it ruins un- the experience the, exactly, yeah, totally, yeah totally and it's you know I just went I went to the um, um, the Honky Tonk Donka Donk had their, their uh year long year anniversary at the Cobra the other night. And I was really struck by that there is that like the entertainment was really good and the staff was extraordinary and it was like it was a great experience sort of yes, all around. Totally. And that really stands out.
0: Totally.
1: Yeah. It's here it's nice to hear someone acknowledge it. I think sometimes people don't acknowledge that. <laughs>
0: yeah. I've seen that. Like, not to talk shit, but I've yeah. seen it with other musicians that are in that early phase of like, sure. what can I get? Right. And it's just like, I'm just like, don't disrespect the people that you that are working with you tonight. Right, you right.
1: know, it's interesting because in Portland, Maine, which has has in- increasingly been written up as like the you know like a super foodie city or whatever. Yeah. The, the uh, some bartenders and 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 waitstaff have essentially become their own celebrities, yeah, which is a really absolutely. interesting thing to watch happen. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's good to see everyone sort of treat each other well because yeah. everyone is doing their part.
0: Gosh, there are some bartenders on Broadway that have been down there for 10 or 15 years and they have their own fans sure. that come in on vacation and yeah. want to see them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's so cool. Yeah. can you Can you tell me what it was like the first time you played at the Aubrey? Like what what is that like for someone who is aware of the institution and then yeah you had to do it <laughs>
0: <laughs> nerve-wracking exciting <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: you know and you have your whole family and all your friends so you have to turn your phone off cuz you can't focus on anything cuz everyone's so excited for you but yeah it's the best and every time I get to do it I try to just focus and not let it get in my head, because it is an institution and it's such an honor. yeah, I try to enjoy all those moments, yeah. you know, and not get too freaked out about it and just enjoy it and hope that I can come back and do it again,
1: yeah, yeah i had I had Brittany Hassan who i'm I'm friendly with, and I asked her that question, and yeah. I think I was like, were there any ghosts there? <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, yeah, there's ghosts
0: <laughs> for sure. <laughs> the Ryman,
1: absolutely. Yeah, it's just full of just full of uh, heroic ghosts.
0: <laughs> yeah,
3: for uh, sure.
1: And wh- I mean, you you knowing where you go with with Delamay in particular. I mean, you yeah. travel to you travel to places I think a lot of people don't necessarily even think of traveling to. Yeah, um, for sure. Um, how how has that changed? changed you since when you started the band. I mean, you've been to a lot of places.
0: Yeah, we've been to a lot of places and gotten, um, to exposed to many different cultures that Mm -hmm. I would never even thought of having the opportunity, um, to do. I mean, it's, it's changed me. It's changed me extremely. Like just, and also opened my mind. Mm -hmm. I came from the South and, um, from a very traditional southern family and our culture um, resembles a lot of the traditional cultures around the world that are different from mine but through music um, some of the places we've been have been like Central Asia and the Middle East and um, I found that the human experience and human nature at the core we all want the same things we all have our versions of soul food we all have our versions of folk music and we're all so much more similar than anyone lets on it seems like yeah um but the experience of being able to experience for example a muslim family's um like just a dinner with a muslim family for example Mm -hmm. sitting down and wearing a hijab and sitting down and sharing food and song and prayer mm-hmm. it's such an honor and it's so amazing for me to get to experience that and i want to you know i just want to let people know like we're so much more similar mm-hmm. than than it seems you know and just our cultures are a little bit different but everyone loves soul food and everyone loves good music and everyone loves to you know feel their spirit awaken sure so
1: yeah I mean, that's, that's I mean, it's, it's like a, it's a, that's a gift to have that, it to, to have created that opportunity. Gift.
0: I wish that everyone could just, I was talking about this last night at Bluegrass Wednesday Nights with my friend Evan, who uh, has traveled a ton. He ch- got grew up traveling with his family. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were talking about, we wish everyone after high school could travel for a year and just sure. travel for an entire year and get to experience the world and then come back and. Start their, you know, their professional lives.
1: Yeah, that's been the fascinating thing about like running into like everyone who is playing the playing these kinds and genres of music and running in these circles is that for genres that came out of like a very traditional, very male, sort of very conservative background, Mm -hmm. now I mean I know that this is not the case across the board, and I know that there are people who feel like there should be particular kinds of purity in the ways that the music are played yeah. but the people i know who play this music are like some of the worldliest <laughs> some of the worldliest people that i know yeah and that's cool it is cool it's cool being down at the at the legion and having that be a place that you you are having a conversation with someone <laughs> i know right
0: gosh yeah yeah for sure i mean it's true i mean for me when i st- I always wanted to learn, have experiences and travel and learn about different cultures. And I haven't learned any other languages yet, but that's on the list, you know, but a little bit here and there. But um, I always wanted that. And through music, I've been able to have that experience. But it's been so enlightening and just, yeah been great yeah, <laughs> I want to do more of it
1: <laughs> and what so so it sounds like is I mean you have you have the record out now and it sounds like you're you're thinking about putting putting a new one together
0: a new solo record yeah yes yeah yes. I have a concept for a record so yeah I just need time to to do it which maybe this winter I'm getting ready to tour to get pretty busy with Delamay sure. but I'm also writing and thinking about the band and where I'll record the record and um It may change, it may evolve, but I think just having an idea is a great first step. And for me, I I will start with an idea, and it always ends up, when it's executed, totally different than what I thought it would be in the beginning. But it's just holding on, grabbing on to the spark of an idea and wrangling it in and then doing something with it um, is just the start of it for me. So um, right now I want to make – I think I want to make a – Bluegrass record with like traditional sounding bluegrass songs, if not traditional songs, I'll write so- songs in the traditional vein. Sure. Or like classic bluegrass that people jam. Yeah. But with a, a from a female voice, mm-hmm. just to give more options for songs for young women who are or or women in general who want to jam bluegrass. Right. I want to give some more options for um, their voice, like. I've been looking and sifting through songs that fit my voice well. There's not always, um, with because, you know, bluegrass and the classics are so male-dominated, there's not a ton of, like, classic bluegrass songs that I can sing in, like, an open, um, like, a G mm-hmm. shape for the banjo. Because a lot of the songs that are in G, A, or B that are, like, played with that, crack of the banjo in the band right. I will have to sing those songs in like D or C or E or um, a tune that doesn't give you that sonic pop from a bluegrass band sure. so I'm on a mission like I've just for years just been writing down songs oh I can do this song in B mm-hmm. it fits my voice and the harmonies sit in a place that it gives the punch that say flattened and Scruggs like when those two guys sang together and right. the band all came in together um, so I'm on sort of on a hunt and collecting songs that have that crack and that attack. So for myself and to give to other women who want to sing songs, classic bluegrass songs.
1: Right on. Yeah. That's excellent. And are you are you um, in any? It sounds like you're looking for existing songs that exist, but you're also potentially writing some of the yeah, songs. In there? I wanna yeah, I want to write
0: songs in that feel. So yeah. do a little bit of both. Yeah. So that's the idea, not to. It may or may not happen. Like I said, yeah. this idea may change, but that's kind of the idea that I'm grasping onto today.
1: Yeah, I mean, and it sounds. Like it also it sounds like from like a content perspective, some of the songs could also use rewriting. I mean, there's, yeah, you know, there's, yeah, there, yeah. Some of the content's a little alienating.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure, absolutely. So that's another thing. Yeah, I heard.
1: <laughs> I heard Lula Wiles do us I can't remember what. Wh- I can't remember if it was a song that they wrote or they wrote with, with with someone else, but they had done a they'd done a murder ballad that was turned where it was a, a, mm-hmm. a woman sort of murdering an abusive uh, yeah. partner, and yeah. I was like, oh, this is great. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I'll take more <laughs> totally. of these. Totally. Yeah. Uh, can you um just this? Oh, it seems like a non a non uh, related question, but it's a totally related question because of potentially who will be interviewing in the same episode. Are you familiar with Ernest? from the Ernest movies oh
0: yes yeah what was his famous what was it uh, like what did he say yeah you know
1: what I mean Vern
0: yeah you know what I mean
1: (laughs) he's from here he's from Nashville that whole character was developed here wow and I just talked with the head writer of the show (laughs) Um, just like, it's a phenomenal (laughs) local story. But yeah, he came out of like improv and Shakespeare in the park down here. What? Yeah. In 1981.
0: Wow. (laughs) You know what I mean? Burn. I haven't thought about that. (laughs) Are you interviewing him?
1: He's dead. So he's he's dead. So it's going to be hard. Wow. Nashville has a lot to offer.
0: It has so much to offer. (laughs) You're, yeah, you're going to enjoy it here.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Thank I you. really appreciate your time.
0: Thanks. You're out there on the road, so far away from home. That's just the way it is. You, making your way through another town, called me on the phone to tell me that you miss me. Down in 1875, little white lines as they pass you by, you're one step closer but a million miles away. And you say, are you okay, are you okay alone, are you okay, are you okay alone, do you think of me in the darkest night, in a candlelit world, do you hold
1: so much thanks again to jenny lynn for coming on you can find her everywhere where people are on the internet uh you know how to spell dela d-e-l-l-a-d-e-l-l-a-m-a-e and you can also find her at j-e-n-n-i-l-y-n gardner um she's on uh instagram she has she has uh, she has a website <laughs> she's <laughs> she's on all of the places people are on the internet okay Let's get into Daniel Butler. Quickly, uh, nobody at the studio on the day that I recorded this gave me a heads up. There'd be heavy construction that day. So you're going to hear a lot of that here at the end of this interview. It's muffled, but it's definitely there. I want to thank, uh, Daniel for dealing with that, like a champion. Um, you know, he has been in broadcast for 1 million years, um, as he would assure you. So he, uh, he was really great and I am grateful to him for bearing with it. Um, And yeah, before we do that, remember to like us, review the podcast on anywhere you listen, um, follow on Instagram and Twitter. Um, how do I want to, how do I want to deface Facebook today? Uh, I, I didn't really plan for this. We are on the late career earnest movie that is Facebook. (laughs) You can find us there. Please do all of the things on the internet. I appreciate you listening. This is Nashville Demystified. You're about to listen to Daniel Butler. I ran
2: for John J. Hooker, for the office of John J. Hooker. I had a comedy group here in Nashville called Gonzo Theater, right? And I would go into the Kroger's in Belmede, and here's this guy with this straw hat mm. and the big red tie, and everybody's coming up to him and saying, hi, how are you? Oh, how are you? <laughs> Good to see you. Yeah. And he was just a bon vivant. A okay. definition of just this big, larger-than-life, good-living guy sure. who did not appear to have a job, okay? <laughs> and he had run for every major office since mm. I was born in Tennessee. I always did John J. Hooker for governor, John J. Hooker for—he never won. Yeah. But he was on all the local stations doing his uh, play-by-play of all the elections. sure. So I said, I want his job. (laughs) You know, I want to be, I want everybody to know me and like me, and I want to be called an expert on everything and not hold a job. Mm -hmm. So as part of our promotion for our next show at the Exit Inn, I told Teddy Bart, who was a local radio personality, I said, I'm running for the office of John J. Hooker. Mm. And (laughs) it was a joke. Well, the next thing I know... uh, uh, Teddy Byron had arranged with the journalism fraternity. What is it, Sigma Chi? Or oh, yeah, something. Sure. That's a fraternity. Sure. And they have meetings. And he said, "And he at Bishop's Corner on West End." Mm. And he said, "Dan, you got to show up. You're going to debate John J. Hooker for the office <laughs> of John J. Hooker." <laughs> and I was like, "You can I, I, my wife was in residency. I had a one-year-old baby. Yes. I was trying to care for. Her. I show up." This John J. Hooker had actually researched me. <laughs> 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 and he came armed to attack me at this debate. And it was just, and we were live on WLAC. A, um, when was this? Uh, uh, 19 Max, 1980. Okay. And so I said, okay, we're going to have the election at our show. Our next show was at TJ's on Whitebridge Road. Mm-hmm. I said, sure, the night of the election, we have a show. We're going to have the election for John J. Hooker. Only people who attend the show can vote. Mm. So as the evening goes on, and he's going to come in after his wrap-up on television of the evening's ele- election. And he comes in with his wife at the time. And, uh, and I realized I was going to win the election. And, and I didn't want to because I wanted to get him up on stage. Mm. So I said, I told Ezra, my partner, Ezra Eichelberger, I said, rig the election he has to win. <laughs> so John J. Hooker, at the end of the show, we announce it. He comes in with a couple of bodyguards and his wife, and they sit down. They look like the mafia. Yeah. <clears throat> and we say, and Ezra announces the winners. John J. Hooker wins by 32 votes. Mm-hmm. And it was he, he got up on stage. He tears in his eyes, <laughs> and he could not speak. And he said. This has never happened to me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I have never won an election, and I'm speechless. Oh my gosh! <laughs> oh my gosh! And it was an amazing night. Yeah, it wha- was right after he'd been in Reds. Did he the get film it? Reds with Warren Beatty? Oh, the yes, yeah, yeah. And uh, he came to. I had done a bit part in a movie, um, Country Gold, yes. I think it was, and uh, he came by my dressing room. After I had announced I was running for him, <laughs> and just scared the hell out of me.
1: I digress. I'm sorry. No, that's fantastic I mean, that's so so when I when I came across your name, I was looking for that kind of history of Nashville. And someone um someone on Reddit Said uh, had had spoken about uh, Jim Varney's history here, and they said you. And it turns out a lot of people have proximity to that history, like a lot of kids who went to the camp, and a lot of uh, there was
2: everybody in town was. One degree of separation Involve. from my own.
1: Come <laughs> sure. on, and your and so your name came up, and they they graciously. I don't even know who this person is, but they graciously were. I like, want their name. Okay, I, I will find out <laughs> later. But they graciously got got us in touch um, and said I absolutely had to talk with you, and I'm glad that that's the case because it seems like, you know, outside of just the the proximity of the of of your work on earnest, you've done so much. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's been a remarkable life, yeah. but you know it's
2: interesting that when I was coming up, um, when I moved back to Nashville and uh, I began to do uh, Shakespeare in the Park and, and mm. Ensemble uh, Theater Company, um, it was, uh, Nashville had just become Music City USA. Mm. See, and now everything, all of the projects and films and television shows that were brought here were country music related. Right. And it was just it was really frustrating to writers and talent in Nashville that were not country. Right. right. <laughs> and what are we going to do? Yeah. And uh, so it was I was always trying and there were a bunch of us the creatives in Nashville who were always trying to break out of to do something other not country music related. Mm-hmm. Um Ernest was a redneck, yeah. <laughs> right. so he was country-related. Right. Um, and then eventually, America's Dumbest Criminals right. was uh, perhaps too too rural. Yeah, yeah. You were looking <laughs> around. It turns out,
1: you were looking around at what was happening. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> it was a logical step
2: from one dumb boy comedy to another. And you know.
1: And, and can you talk? How did America's How did America's Dumbest Criminals happen?
2: uh, uh Quite simply, uh, Vic Rumor, who was one of my greatest bosses, who owned a a part of WLAC at the time Mm. and put me on the radio there with Stephen Wesley Bridgewater. He started Cascom, which was a video clip, uh, like stock images video. Sure. And he did a home video uh, that he advertised in the back of Parade magazine, Mm. VHS. And uh, (laughs) it was about near-death experiences, people who had seen the white light and come back. And he sold a million of them. Mm -hmm. So Vic called me up and said, hey, Butler, why don't you do a home video, man? Vic was from Southern Mississippi. And... I said, yeah, uh, okay, Vic, sure. He said, yeah, I'll give you $30,000. You do a one-hour home video, and I'll sell it in Parade Magazine. (laughs) So I called a couple of buddies, Alan Ray and Leland Gregory, writers. We met at Bongo Java down in Belmont in the back room, and we're sitting there going, what can we do? What can we do? What's hot? What's not? It was 1994, Mm. and the hottest show on television was Cops and America's Most Wanted. Right. And every Saturday night, my wife and I would have date night. And my 12-year-old son, uh, I would get to – for the first time, we let him babysit four-year-old little brother. Mm-hmm. And we'd go out to dinner for about an hour and a half and come right back home. Well, they would watch Cops and America's Most Wanted. So when we got home, they were terrified. <laughs> they were like, Close the door. Right. Close the door. He's out there. No, Dad, there's a guy. He's a murderer. He's a... And, they were, and it was just like, whoa, whoa, guys, slow down. No, he's not out there. All right? Yeah. And, uh, and I tried to convince them that, you know, they're, they're, criminals are not around every corner. They're not geniuses. Mm. And it, you don't need to be afraid, mm. you know? Um, and when we were sitting around back there in Bongo Java, we're going. Wait. Well, what about America's least wanted? Right. You know. What about the people who catch themselves? Right. And uh, and that's how it began. And we were really going to do. It was. Uh, we were just going to make it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, make up the. It was going to be total comedy, not based on reality. And uh, so we thought. Well, we need a real cop to host the show. Right. So we had uh, auditions for real cops here in Nashville mm-hmm. at the Vanderbilt Los Plaza. Well, these guys, they came in, and even though they'd been in shootouts, high-speed chases, and everything else, when you put a camera on a cop, yeah, <laughs> they're like, Hi, hey, hello, I'm Sergeant Tom. And it's like, dude, relax, right. okay? We're just talking, all right? So I would say, look, uh, just, hey. Tell me about the dumbest guy you ever arrested, Mm -hmm. or the worst excuse you ever heard. You know, what about that? Did anybody ever just like catch themselves and they go, "Oh, dude, one time I (laughs) had this guy," and you know, and then they started to open up. Yeah. And we realized after that audition, wait a minute, we don't have to make this stuff up. We don't have to break our, you know, but. Writing, right. they have all the stories. Yeah. So we got in my van with uh, me and three other guys: sound man, cameraman, Alan, one of the writers. And we just got in my van and we ran around the southeast, mm-hmm. walking into police stations and saying, "Hey, we want to interview your officers about the dumbest criminals they ever met." Right. <laughs> and uh, and that's how that got started. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it worked. Like, it worked. That it was would, around for a long time. It was shocking. <laughs> <laughs> With a book, um, Rutledge Hill Press
2: uh, put out the book, and it became a New York Times bestseller paperback right. nonfiction right. for four and a half months, um, which none of us expected. But I think it was also the timing of it. Um, 94, this was uh, right after uh, the O.J. Simpson trial. Sure. Um, Hugh Grant had gotten busted with mm. a prostitute. Senator Packwood in the Senate yeah. had gotten busted for... And they all kind of got off. Right. So there was a this real feeling in the country of there is no justice. Right. Um, and um, when we showed people who received instantaneous justice (laughs) hoisted on their own petard immediately. I mean, it was just like, oh, my gosh, yay. You know, and the first story that we came across that really solidified it was two guys pull up to a hot stop. They run in. One of them runs in. The clerk is just changing the cash drawer for the shift change. When the guy walks up to her and hands her a $20 bill and says, could you change this for me? And mm-hmm. she says, sure. She takes his 20, opens the cash drawer, and he pulls the gun on her and says, give me the cash drawer. And mm-hmm. she says, but but." he said, give me the cash drawer, I'll shoot. And she goes, okay, okay. And she gives him the cash drawer. He runs out with the cash drawer, gets in the car, and he said, his partner's driving, and he said, well, how much do we get? And he said, $8. dollars <laughs> she had just changed yeah. the credit, <laughs> cash drawer, and, and he said, where's my 20? <laughs> and the clerk was still holding his 20. So the two bad guys lost
1: $12 right. in a robbery.
2: <laughs> you know? And it was just like, oh, my God. It's gorgeous. The bad guys lost money? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like the
1: Ryan O'Neill character in Paper Moon, right? Oh, it's like the, like. Yeah. F- let's find more of these guys. <laughs> exactly.
2: And in every market that we went to, and we ended up going from. New York City to uh, San Diego mm-hmm. and Seattle to Florida. And uh, it was uh, a remarkable four years.
1: How how did you become a person who's from Nashville?
2: I was born <laughs> from a woman. Gonna, this is going to be a long
1: conversation. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. Did that clear how, it up for Alex? you, I just... How did you become a person who is who is from this area who who became interested in the things that you are interested in, which are not country music USA? Wow!
2: How did I become the person <laughs> I am? Well, Alex, there's, there's environment and then there's <laughs> genetics, and I well, no, I uh, my father was an executive at Genesco mm. um, General Shoe Corporation. And uh, he got into a fight with Maxie Charman, which you're not from Nashville, but never get into a fight with Maxie Charman. He started General Shoe Company. My father got kicked upstairs Mm -hmm. to become president of Foreign Fit Rogers Ladies Lingerie and Underwear on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. So I went from being uh, a fairly cloistered youth in Nashville, Tennessee in the 50s and 60s to moving to New York City in 1966 at the age of 15. And I was already six feet tall. Right. Um, and that was uh, liberal education. Sure. Moving from Nashville to New York in 1966. I
1: hear things were going on.
2: <laughs> wow. I mean, the BNs in the Central Park, mm. uh, uh, Greenwich Village, uh, um, yeah, Washington Square. Right. And... Um, It was just such a culture shock Mm. uh, for me at at that period in time. The uh, moratoriums at the United Nations where I heard Martin Luther King speak on the same Hmm. podium with uh, Stokely Carmichael, which never happened, and uh, just all of that going on in New York. The first disco, Mm. the Cheetah disco in Times Square. (laughs) (laughs) And at the same time, uh, being ushered into my father's office, Where now he's running a ladies' lingerie and underwear Mm. company, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm 16, and models walk in with fitters and designers. And these are women in bras and panties. Right. In my father's office, <laughs> okay, yeah, 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 yeah. and they're like poking on the model, saying, yeah. well, "See it, it? It's a pooches up right here, so we need to." And I was just like, "Holly, <laughs> golly, Dad, yeah. you got a swell job." <laughs> uh, so it really was sort of gomer Pile in New York, but I was exposed to so much. My parents sent me to a prep school in Connecticut. Because their basic knowledge of New York at the time was West Side Story sure so they thought if I remained in the city I would become a shark or a jet all the way Uh, (laughs) and so they sent me to a prep school where I was the only southern kid um, with uh, some real snobs (laughs) how did when you first when you
1: first experienced like the any of the sort of monumental things that you're talking about in New York um, from From the you know the boardroom where your dad was to to uh, sort of any of the cultural phenomena, how did you reconcile that? Like, how did you reconcile that being from here? I did the first day. I mean, you're talking about a kid in
2: uh, all I knew about New York City really was Times Square. Mm -hmm. So the first day when I got to go out on my own, I walked from East 72nd Street (laughs) to Times Square, right? And. And when I was walking through Times Square in 1966, there was a, a, a young black man, mm. s- very slight, uh, thin, walking with a, an older white gentleman, looked like my father. Mm-hmm. They were holding hands, mm-hmm. and the the young black gentleman was wearing falsies and false eyelashes right. and had his hairstyle in yeah. a woman's hairstyle.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So now. Gomer Pyle Mm -hmm. (laughs) is seeing this for the first time, and I busted out laughing Mm -hmm. because I'd just never seen. And he, number one, a white man and a black man holding hands. Right. Right. <laughs> Coming from Nashville was new. Mm-hmm. Him being dressed like a woman, I immediately thought, this guy must have lost a bet.
1: Right, 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 right. <laughs> right. And he has to walk through Times
2: Square dressed like a woman. Yeah. So when I got home that night, I came back and I told my parents who had grown up in Atlanta, Georgia, oh, you won't believe what I saw today, Mom. This guy, two guys holding hands. And my parents, I remember their faces just <laughs> ashen, right. going, We have no idea what they were doing. Right. And so they were really sort of going through it with me. Right. Only they were in their 40s, and I was the youngest of four,
1: 16. Um, They were probably on the phone with the prep school that night.
2: (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. This is actually when I was home. Oh, okay. uh, In New York on leave. But it was, uh, I mean, it was just eye-opening in every meaning of that word right. um, in so many ways, p- politically, socially, uh, racially, mm-hmm. religious, spiritually. Uh, <laughs> I thought back to one memory of New York City was the big book, one of the big preachers at the time was Norman, Norman Vincent Peale, okay, yes. uh, The Power of Positive Thinking, right. who had been a big seller. So they took me, we were Presbyterian, they took me to his Presbyterian church. Years later, come to find out, guess who was another member of that church? Hmm. Donald Trump. <laughs> the power of positive thinking. Right, right. And after two sermons, I was going, this guy is just making it up as it goes along. <laughs> sure. I mean, right. he's saying pretend. Right. Uh, and I, this doesn't go at all with what? I grew up with the Westminster Presbyterian Church in Nashville right. and I told my parents they were crazy. Yeah, but uh, That was one spiritual aspect of it. But then of course Greenwich Village. There were lots of different spiritual aspects
1: Sure, but that's New York. You want to talk about Nashville. I do I do and I'm cur- but I'm, what I'm curious about what, I th- why, think why I'm asking these questions is knowing that knowing as you described earlier you you sort of you came back and you were involved in improv and you are I'm, I'm just curious about how those elements were received here and 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 who 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 brought them like what was the improv scene? Like, what, what, what did you come back to? Um, and when did she, did you come I back? came
2: back when I left in 1966? Uh, the Ryman Auditorium was the Grand Ole Opry, mm-hmm. above, you know, I mean, and Those eight years, uh, when I came back, first of all, when I left, Nashville didn't have an interstate. Right. Right. (laughs) You know, it was just being built. Mm -hmm. And there was no Mm -hmm. Opryland. And Nashville was a conservative southern town. Hank Williams Jr., Josephus, was in my elementary school. Sure. uh, In the fifth and sixth grade with me. And I was on his softball team. And we treated him horribly because uh, country music people were. Poor white trash, right. in in the eyes of you know Nashville, Right. and when I came back eight years later, <laughs> they were the royalty, Right. and it was there was a, there was a theme park yeah. for crying out loud. So you came back in seventy yeah, four, uh, actually no seventy six. Oh, so Nashville. okay,
1: yeah, seventy six. You came back in Na- Altman's Nashville time,
2: yes. <laughs> and the exit in, and uh, Joan Tukesbury wrote the film, and sure. then the exit in, and uh my former neighbor was one of the part owners, and I right. was like, Dude, wow, what happened to my own town <laughs> right. and it had changed just so dramatically um right. and become music city u s a this uh it looked like i felt like I was walking back into a theme park right what brought me back actually was um i was a uh, uh had filed for a conscientious objector mm. um I was in the first televised uh, lottery for Vietnam. Right. And of the 10 of us in the room where we were watching the lottery, all 10 of us were our birth dates were under were called in the first 50 birthdays. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so we were all looking at Nam, sure, in um, '69. And, 69. and um, So I applied as a conscientious objector because I just did not feel that I could take another life. And went through a long process on that, that they did not want to give that to me. And uh, they finally did. so. And I was drafted, and I served two years alternative service as an orderly, mm. uh, operating room orderly, and then uh, psychiatric orderly wow. uh, for two years. Wow. And after that, having worked in hospitals, I went through a two-year radiology program and became an x-ray tech hmm. in uh, St. Louis, Missouri trained at the Mallinckrodt Institute of Radiology on the first CT scanner in hmm. the United States. Yeah. And I came home to visit my parents in Nashville, and uh, Vanderbilt uh, had just gotten the first CT scanner in Nashville, right. and, and they were looking for techs. <laughs> and I was like, well, I happen to have trained on the first one in the U.S. So I got hired at uh, Vanderbilt, Fordham at midnight. Yeah. and on-call midnight to 7 a.m. for the first CT scanner. And uh, my name there was Scan Man Dan. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, like you were like a DJ. <laughs> I was. I, I was legendary at <laughs> Vanderbilt Hospital. I had, uh, because I worked 4 to midnight, right. and uh, and most of my coworkers were uh, black and from North Nashville, and we would go sure. out and went to TSU and we're all musicians, and they would take me out clubbing mm-hmm. uh, after midnight. Yeah, So I'm like one of the few white men who would leave work at midnight dressed entirely in white, mm-hmm. white pants, white shirt, white lab coat, and go and be the only white person at the New Era Club,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and getting down, yeah, and uh, we had some fun. I've been this guy, and it's a fun time. <laughs> it's, uh, it was wild. We had fun. Uh, we had wheelchair
2: races sure. uh, in the uh, me and the residents on the Vanderbilt parking lot, the oh, ER gosh. parking lot when it got slow. Yeah, um, we had, and I have uh, me and a group of nurses and techs. We formed a group called the Merry Pranksters, yep. and about once a quarter, we would rent a bar and put on a party and for all the employees in Vanderbilt and just pass out leaflets. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was the only time I ever saw a neurosurgeon sitting at a bar with a guy from housekeeping, yeah, right, 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 drinking, right, right. and talking about Talking about those patients, man. Oh, man. That's <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. It was, it was a wild time. But that's what brought me back to Nashville. And um, so I was at Vanderbilt for four years or so. And then uh, I went from, uh, I started doing community theater. Was Shakespeare in the Park, mm. which I'd done in high school, some Shakespeare. And I just on a whim, I went for Shakespeare in the Park. And got the role of Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet sure and did it out behind the Parthenon at the Art Center
1: yeah that's amazing and you you I mean in your you were doing that around how old were you then around in your late 20s yeah uh,
2: I was born in 51 right so 25 when I came back to town right uh, really 20 uh, 29 when I got married uh, my son was born the year later and um, so late seventies. Yeah. So I mean, so 80s.
1: in entertainment, at least, you were a relatively late bloomer. I mean, you came in at, at extremely. Yeah, and I did not go to school for it. It probably benefited <laughs> you. Well,
2: <laughs> it, until I got to T. Right. and and I was doing um, the importance of being earnest. Mm. No relation to Ernest people sure. This was the Oscar Wilde <laughs> Ernest um, with uh, Tennessee Rep, right. Mac Perkle and and Mike Miller. And they had this director from L.A., and I was cast as Algernon, Mm. and being on stage in a 2,000-seat theater and playing schools during the day, Mm. uh, school groups, um, was an amazing experience. And Mm. I learned a great deal from that production and that director and and, that—and the Tennessee rep, an amazing— Group of people, very right. talented. They made me wish I had gone to school. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and they schooled me.
1: Yeah, well, that's good. You were you were receptive, and that's important. <laughs> buddy! You get up on that stage, you'll be receptive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, how did you meet Jim Varney? And who who was who was Jim Varney? How did you meet him? Well, I mean,
2: Varney did, he was doing stand up, mm. you know, at the Exit Inn, and I'd seen him as Sergeant Glory, mm. which was an earlier character that he did for Carnivale. Specifically for purity dairies here, mm. and with the world drill sergeant, he was Dr- drill sergeant, and he was drilling milkmen mm-hmm. at their trucks. And uh, so I'd seen that uh, Coke Sam's and Jim May, mm-hmm. who ran studio productions down in the gulch, mm-hmm. uh, they uh, it, which used to be Slick Lawson's studio, famous local photographer, where Chris Christopherson. Crashed on his couch <laughs> down in the studio productions, slicks old studio, after he came back from Vietnam. Right. Whoa, um, yeah, sure. I can show you the spot, uh, <laughs> right behind NES. But um, so they had this incredible space, uh, studio. It's like an old garage, and we had this comedy troupe, mm. Gonzo Theater, and Jim and Coke and Buster John Cherry. Uh, after a day of shooting Ernest, came to the Exit in and saw our show. Um, Coke had seen us once before, when we were March 325 Union. Um, But that's the night that Buster and Jim and Coke saw us. And and Coke and Jim May were doing a pilot for Cable with the guy who did Chicken Man on the radio. Years ago, I've forgotten his name. But he was doing a comedy uh, pilot for HBO, Mm-hmm. And this was 80, 81, called Traveling Light. Mm. And we shot a pilot with Coke and Jim for Chicken Man <laughs> <laughs> called Traveling Light. And it never went anywhere. But Coke and Jim let us set up in studio productions down in the gulch. And we started doing our shows down mm. there. Um, it was you had to turn right there at the, uh, the old Hippodrome, the Tennessean newspaper to mm. get down there to it. And in 1981, 82, this was not an area of town that normal people went to. Sure, sure, sure. (laughs) And never at night on Friday and Saturday. So I had to really, we did all sorts of free publicity, the noon show, every local show we could. And a buddy of mine, who I went to grammar school with, Miles Maley, I said, Miles, he was really getting into painting now, I said, Miles, I need some signs. On, to put on Broadway to direct people off of Broadway down to Gonzo Theater, it's studio productions. And uh, I'll buy you some sheets of plywood, okay? And I just need an arrow and the word Gonzo, hmm. okay? So I buy four, uh, four by eight sheets of plywood. I give them to Miles Mayley. This is 82, 81. Miles paints these incredible. Incredible. There's an audience of people. There's... <laughs> Gonzo is on a theater curtain, and there's a big arrow. And he paints for them with the arrows going different. So I can put them... We strapped them on telephone poles every Friday and Saturday mm-hmm. nights. And the arrows would point you to it. And Miles Mailer... And he did... T- his first wearable art, okay. I think, were Gonzo Theater T-shirts mm-hmm. that we sold during intermission. Right. That's fantastic. <laughs> and... Uh, Unfortunately, uh, we ended up uh, at a, about a year and a half later. We had to make a stage, mm-hmm. and we used the Miles Maley original signs to build our stage.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, so they're, they're so, literally yeah. in there. I They'd mean,
2: be it, worth it, ten grand each now, but hey, yeah. hey,
1: <laughs> it's they You had to use it for the art. It's for the art. We had to make <laughs> do. <laughs> and what was what was Varney like? Like what was what was? I mean, he was. Um, he was always on,
2: uh, in the sense that the guy was just a stream of consciousness riffing. Yeah. Um, and it was amazing. Uh, I mean, his mind was just, he was a brilliant guy. Um, the, uh, and he, I think, and I, I talked about this in the talk that I gave at his memorial service, mm. his ability to make everyone feel special, um, was remarkable right. in uh, the public setting but just on the set when you're shooting and we would shoot 32 commercials a day with Jim uh, where he would just you know climb up the ladder right. with the purity product Coke would push the ladder off he'd fall to the mattress right. they'd hand him <clears throat> Pine State Dairy product ready climb back up the ladder hey Vern with the Pine State Dairy Coke push him off fall down hand him a different product climb up the ladder yeah and the record i think we set was 32 in one day <laughs> but um jim was just an incredible guy and um he made you feel special the the lowest person on the crew i mean he would hang out with you and and talk and uh he was he was so down to earth and yet a brilliant man
1: i i grew up with that character um, in Maine in Maine. Yeah, really right cuz it was a it was a there was a TV show, right? There was a TV show hey like, t- right. CBS right and I grew up with that character and I remember it feeling like this was a person you knew, right? Like that this was a person who was addressing you. And that was the beautiful thing about the mechanism of talking of to talking Vern. to Vern.
2: And the camera being
1: Vern. Right, exactly. Yeah. But, but also it felt like he he felt at that time, and it's I think it's sort of, it's interesting to be able to like remember this as a child, which means it made quite an impression, is that it felt like this is a person who accepted you, which is a very hard thing I think to do genuinely. Yeah. And and it sounds like that was who he was.
2: Yeah, yeah, he really was. And um, it's the, the the television show was interesting because you brought that up. Um, at the time, we were on we were in a six picture development deal with Disney, mm. which meant that M-Shell Producers Group, uh, the division of Cardin and Cherry Advertising, that did television and film. Uh, we were tied to them, and the Earnest character was tied to them. Mm-hmm. So when Deke, uh, DIC, D I C, who provided content for children's content for all the uh, networks, came to us and said, "We want to do an Earnest TV show," mm. uh, Disney said, "No, you can't," mm. uh, because we you you're tied to you're married to the mouse right, <laughs> right. and uh like, so no ominous. no 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 you you don't have all rights to the earnest character and they said well all right we have rights to the earnest character doing a linear story okay beginning middle and end oh so they're like, okay so we go back to Deke and CBS, and I was director of motion picture and television development for Imshow Producers Group, mm-hmm. uh, and said, okay, we can't do a story for your TV show. So what if we do a bunch of sketches right. around one topic?
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: right. there's no beginning, middle, and end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just a sketch show. Sure. And they said, great, okay, all right, and... Told Disney. Yeah, it's not a story. It's just sketches, random that's, sketches. That's brilliant. Hence the uh, <laughs> food show, right. scary stuff sure. show. Um, and so we'd pick a topic and um, and just go with that. They did they did end it up I mean there was going to be a bake-off mm-hmm. at the beginning of the show, and at the end of the show, there was a bake-off. Sure, sure, sure. So,
1: it kind of had a beginning, middle, and end, but don't tell Disney. Right. No, yeah. No, they, they should not find out. I mean, and for that time, too, when when I was a kid in the 80s, uh, and I don't know, I think that show must have been in the late 80s, early 90s, um, It was funny because a lot of the content for kids was... There wasn't a ton of content for kids, so it was just mixed. So, like, there'd be, like... You could watch SCTV as a kid. It was just, like, on, like, reruns or whatever. One of my favorites. Oh, just the... Best. Yeah, and then and the then, steakhouse. Right. <laughs> oh my god! I'm sorry. Okay, we and, digress. And we then, digress. And then there's Ernest, and it all feels like it fit together in that sort of weird mishmash universe. Because it was sketch. I'm realizing now that you were true. You, you were yeah. making a sketch show.
2: <laughs> yeah, which was <laughs> for kids. which was what the Gonzo Theater was here in Nashville. Right. We were basically doing Saturday Night Live without the cameras. Yeah. Um, and that was Ernest. It was interesting to me in doing the Ernest thing at that time. Uh, all of the other writers their children they either didn't have children or were bachelors no. or their children were grown and i was the only person in the writers group who had school age children right so <laughs> I mean, the the other writers didn't know what a trapper keeper was sure. <laughs> you know they were three ring binder guys right, all right, right? Right, right so but i'm buying school supplies i'm a cub scout den Father, I'm doing all that stuff So I'm like, no, no, guys, no Hey, wait <laughs> yeah. And I kept trying to bring them back to today's Children Sure. And uh, and It was We did, I remember When we looked at the topic, scary things You know, food, what's big to children This age, and blah ba blah, ba blah, ba blah, and, and like scary things Okay, we're going to do goblins and ghosts and ta-ba-da. And it was like, wait a minute Wait, no, wait That's not Ernest. Right. You know, I mean, that's Disney. That's Adam's family. That's all that other Mm -hmm. stuff. But what's scary to Ernest? Going to the dentist. Right. Right. The boogeyman under my bed. Mm -hmm. Uh, The attic. You know, it was uh, what's really scary to children. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's really scary to Ernest? And um, so I think that's looking at him as a Charlie Chaplin, every man, innocent Redneck, (laughs) he said, "Watch this, you know." And and launches himself out of a giant slingshot. I mean, but what's, you know, where is his innocence Mm -hmm. Uh, and and the fact that he had a heart? Uh, The the biggest scene for Disney, we Disney insisted there must be heart Mm -hmm. in every movie. Where's the heart? So that's why you see, and Ernest goes to camp. Ernest singing (laughs) to a turtle. Right. That was the heart. Yeah. Pokey, you know, and uh, so, yeah, it was uh, very bizarre.
1: What 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 was your first, what was your first, um, um, what was your first Ernest-based project?
2: I was getting, uh, Buster, John Cherry, invited me to come sit in on a writing session. Right. When I was doing Gonzo Theater. And he said, I'll pay you Seventy-five dollars an hour. Mm. I was like, holy yeah, that's wow. <laughs> that was huge right. uh, in 80 81 something like that um, And of course I just You know for for the whole day before I was just Cranking out ideas and I get to the meeting and like in the first 15 minutes. I just I shoot all my ideas yeah, yeah, My yeah. best ideas out yeah, and they're all just like "Yeah, uh, yeah Okay <laughs> All right. All right, we're good. Yeah. And yeah. I was only there for about 20 right, minutes. Right, right, right. And Buster said, I'll pay you for the whole hour. Yeah. And he gave me a check for 75 bucks. Yeah. And I, two of the commercials that I submitted that day mm-hmm. were running 10 years later.
1: Right. So, right. Yeah, they, they really <laughs> high ROI on that so hour. So I began to learn. I began to learn. Hey,
2: wait a minute. Yeah. If I'm getting paid by the hour not by the spot and uh, we were contract for hire uh, and we were you know we were salaried employees right so uh, we cranked it out buddy
1: yeah how how what was your what, what were your big takeaways from doing that that work around the, around the the earnest character like what I mean, it seems like that's such a unique opportunity I can't there are so few opportunities like that one, maybe like you know, um, uh, uh, Paul Rubin's Pee Wee, um, where people get to sort of develop and work on a universe and create a universe over time.
2: Yeah, it's um, – it, well, the, um, the thing of it was – and I've been realizing this recently – that it was almost as though Buster and Jerry um, were creating their own internet. OK, right. because they were faced with, I mean, Ernest had been out in a handful of markets, I mean, maybe 20. And General Motors came to them and said, hey, we like this guy, Ernest. We want him to represent GMC trucks for one year nationally. We'll give you a million dollars. And this was 81, something like that. Um, And Buster and Jerry were just like, well, wait a minute. And they decided no. And they said no. We're going to go market by market, small business by small business Mm -hmm. instead. We're not going to just take the money and run and do one year and blow out this character nationally. We're just going to go market by market and stay with the paradigm that we've set up. Where you're working with... You know a dairy, a car dealership, a du in that town, and customizing the spots to them right um so it and and in the same se- and we're talking about shooting a commercial, i mean much like you're doing right now right right, right? we were sh- shooting commercials with friends in the boss's house using things found around the house yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah yeah, and then selling it. Market by market. Right. And thank God we had Roy Leitner, an amazing uh, sales guy who was retired. He was already 65. But he went market by market. Mm-hmm. And he did his homework. He knew their business better than they did right. and went in. He told them, at first, people will be shocked and repelled by Ernest yeah. and complain. But within three weeks, they'll be laughing and coming in and saying, when are you going to play that commercial again? I've got to get my brother-in-law to see it. Right. And— and Roy Lightner just rolled it out, but it was that sense of uh, a children's crusade. Yeah, this is crazy I mean we were shooting with a, a film camera with a wide-angle lens mm. up in the guy's face right. We were shooting at night with a flashlight mm-hmm. on his face, yeah. you know, I mean no budget down and dirty and Let's what can we make out of this? Right. And it was literally making it up as you go along. And because it was such a family, uh, Jerry and Buster were the dads. Lynn Johnston, who organized everything, was the mom. Mm-hmm. And we were all the kids. Yeah. And it was jumped to it, and we had to pull it off. And you had to be a jack of all the trades right, uh, for us to pull this off. And we did. So you were crew. You were props. You were, you know run, get coffee, t- everybody did everything.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and we had to, to pull it off. Yeah. So it was very much like your generation, what you're doing now mm-hmm. in terms of just starting with an idea and building market by market, customer by customer. Right. Uh, and it, it clicks, it clicks. Yeah. Uh, and it did. For a lo- for a long time, for a long time. But it was actually you. You went back to we feel like he's somebody everybody knows, right? Um, and it was I growing up in the south. I mean, I've got redneck. Well. I, now this is going on the internet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have Southern relatives, um, uh, some of whom remind me a great deal of Ernest. <laughs> we all did. All of the people in, in the Ernest crew and family. Right. We all knew these people. We they Ernest was our neighbor. He was our cousin. He was our uncle. Right. And when Jim passed away, uh, and they had the, we had the memorial service here at the War Memorial Auditorium, uh, but then they had a family funeral, Mm. when he was laid to rest up in Kentucky. And the bizarre thing about it was that as Jim's relatives got up to speak, we saw every one of his characters Right. He didn't make that up. Right. That was his aunt. Yeah. <laughs> that was his cousin Jimmy. Sure. Oh my gosh, Pops was his uncle Roy. Right, And we saw at Jim's funeral, we he was exposed. Right. <laughs> he had stolen right. all of his material from his relatives. Yeah, and uh, so Ernest was people he knew
1: right. and he grew up with. Right, you know. Um, I feel like that's sort of like what King of the Hill was, right? Like the, oh, the my judge show, King of the Hill. Is... Those guys talking out in the driveway.
2: Right, exactly. And it was my brother in law,
1: yes. Bill Barnes. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> he
2: was shaped. He
1: had that exact same yeah. shape. I don't know. And I know saying. And I'm hanging. There, yeah. You know? yeah. Mine in Maine was Butch my dad's one of my dad's best friends. And he was the same guy. Like, that guy just exists Yeah. in yeah. places you have no idea what he's saying. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but he's, he's saying a lot of it <laughs> uh,
2: yep. but my biggest one of my greatest and I, I told this story in the memorial service for jim was uh my in-laws out in oklahoma mm-hmm. where we had brahms for a client mm-hmm. uh ice cream uh restaurants like shoney's sure and um we went they just thought i was a bum my in-laws they didn't like me i had long hair it was you know but they loved Ernest. Right. And after I'd gone for that first writing session, I told them, hey, I wrote for Ernest. And he said, oh, and my stock rose, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we go out with the new baby to Oklahoma to visit my in-laws. And my father-in-law said, I want you to take me to meet Ernest. Get me his autograph. And I said, oh, I'll, I'll get you his autograph. Yeah. He said, no, he's going to be down at Brahms today. Mm-hmm. And I was like, really? <laughs> And I'd only met the guy, yeah. Jim, like two times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he wasn't in the writer's session, right? And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa! That's gonna be really crowded. And uh, and for two hours, I was just sweating it, yeah. because I knew Jim wasn't gonna recognize me, mm-hmm. and my cover would be blown. And and I take we go and I, it's line five hundred people are there, and Lynn Johnston was up there with Jim. She was his keeper, and sure. She saw me. She talked to Jim. Jim talked to her. Mr. Butler, get your butt up here. And he called me That's up. so sweet. And saved my life. That's so sweet. told my father-in-law I was going to be writing movies for Disney, yeah. which I had not heard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but Jewel Trevor Dowdy, my father-in-law, who was a high school principal and everything else,
3: mm-hmm.
2: I stole a line from him for Ernest. Right. And it was. And I told Jim, this is the guy. He said, golly, Bob, howdy. Yeah. <laughs> that was my father-in-law. Yeah. And he would always say it when I when we drive out there, he'd say, what'd you pay for gas? And I'd say, a oh, buck 76, golly, Bob, howdy. You could have gotten it for a buck 45, five miles down the road. Right. He was always giving me crap mm-hmm. when he said, golly, Bob, howdy. I can't believe you did that. Yeah. And, uh, and But it turns out when I got back, when I, when I first told my father in law on the phone, I said, Hey, Ernest is going to say your line. He said, What? What do you mean, my line? <laughs> I said, I. I wrote golly Bob Howdy into an earnest commercial, and he's going to say it. They're shooting it tomorrow. And he said, I never said that in my life. (laughs) And I said, no, what do you mean? You're who I heard it from. He said, you heard wrong, boy. I say golly bum Howdy. (laughs) And I got it wrong. He said, you got it wrong. It was golly bum howdy, that's what I say. Yeah. It's not golly bob howdy. And it was oh so yeah. I screwed that up. Oh my God. <laughs> even could, even that. Now I could not <laughs> but he would go every morning down to Lang Sam's drugstore yeah. and sit around with the old guy, all these retired guys, and he's the high school principal. And they would sit around and talk at Lang Sam's drugstore and he became the king of Lang Sam's drugstore after Ernest said Golly Bob
1: Howdy. That's amazing. He changed the way he said it. That's amazing. That's amazing. Right. Uh, well, I'd like to, I mean, thank you so much. This is really, this is really incredible. So what do you, what do you, can Did we you, talk about Nashville? Yet? Yeah. I want to, I want to <laughs> ask one last question though. It is about Nashville, which is, which is uh, how, I mean, you've talked about, about how it was different from when um, you left to when you came back and you came back to an interstate and, 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 you know, Opry yeah, in Opry how has it changed since then?
2: Well, see, what what Opryland did was bring this incredible talent pool to Nashville. Uh, Outside of Broadway in New York City uh, in the 80s and 90s, this was the largest talent pool for musical theater, music, Mm -hmm. um, and really for theater um, in a major way. So we had this incredible—because you could work at Opryland and and make your rent. Right. So, I mean, we had these incredibly talented—my piano player and composer for Gonzo Theater, James Fitzgerald, he played the piano for the Gospel Quartet hmm. at uh, at the park. They all called it the park. You hmm. worked at the park. was Opryland. All of the talent in Nashville and the upcoming creatives had to have a day gig at the park hmm. and work for Opryland. Uh, to pay the rent. But at night, you know... uh, And, I mean, really, the east side of Nashville was sort of born out of that creative community that Opryland actually brought here. So it was interesting the effect that it had um, creatively and and in terms of theater and entertainment here. And that's why we began to fancy ourselves as the third coast. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we won't talk about the hotel and restaurant known as the third ghost. Yeah. That was a major Varney debacle. Really? Um, and I guess it's common knowledge now. Yeah. Uh, Jim went through a, a cocaine period. Sure. As he, it was that time. As he told me, really? uh, Butler, cocaine is God's way of telling you you're making too much money. <laughs> and uh, he got busted, uh, not by the police, but by a member of the Ezell family. Okay. Who owned Purity Dairies was going to the bathroom at the Third Coast when Willie Nelson had a room there and everybody was there and Varney was in the bathroom doing a line of cocaine, and the young Izell saw him doing cocaine and they dropped us like a hot rock. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's not purity. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, Jim. Uh, went through treatment and everything, and got past it. Yeah. He became addicted to coffee and chocolate sure. after that, <laughs> which was almost as bad uh, for those of us around him. Yeah. Um, right before I went on the state fair tour with him, which was totally bizarre, um, but it was Nashville became um, a creative center yeah. thanks to becoming a theme park. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. I have never thought about and the fact that it was employed. That was the the. That theme park was employing people, right? Like the who who then could make that living and then make their night living.
2: Yeah, and wh- I think one of the reasons Gonzo Theater became a hit. One of our first bits was we did guns Gon- uh, we did Opryland. Welcome to Opryland. We treated it as a cult. Yes, yes, yes. So yes, the yes, tourists yes. who came out, there were talking to the staff and we went, "Welcome to Music City," <laughs> and they were like these robotic cult members. Right. The mother, MLT. <laughs> um, so, making fun of Opryland actually uh, gave us a name.
1: I'm, yeah, I'm sure. And I'm sure they loved
2: it. In, uh, <laughs> yeah, no. It was owned by the Okies back then. Right. Uh, I've forgotten their names, but yeah. a couple from Edmonds, Oklahoma. And uh, yeah. yeah, wild time.
1: Well, thank you so much for for taking the time. I appreciate it. And thank you for enduring whatever construction is happening in here right now that I was was. not aware of. I thought
2: that was my stomach. Oh, my gosh. I thought that was a
1: chili. Oh, thank gosh. I appreciate it, Dan. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to National Demystified. Again, I'm Alex Steed. Thanks for coming. Jesse LaFontaine does all of the audio-related things for our episodes. I mean, that's not necessarily true. He makes the audio that I very shoddily put together sound good, and he puts it all in listenable form, and we really appreciate him for that. Thanks to Tim Burns for our show-specific illustrations. If you want to get in touch, find us online everywhere you can. Thank you so much for listening. As always, I really appreciate it. I look forward to uh, sharing more with you soon.